Having already looked at martyrs and widows dedicated to the Eucharist, we now consider married saints who were bound together by the sacrament of unity, the Eucharist. Canonized in October 2015, Saints Louis and Zélie Martin are most famous for being the parents of St. Therese, the child Jesus. But there's so much more to their lives than just raising a saint for the kingdom of heaven. They became saints themselves, and their pursuit of holiness began long before they had children. Besides, where did St. Therese learn her little way of holiness? She learned it from her parents and within family life. Although born into a family of soldiers, Louis be, uh, he felt called to become an Augustinian monk. The silence and the solitude of the monastery appealed to this prayerful and quiet man. But he wasn't able to master Latin, and so he eventually abandoned his hopes for the monastic life. He settled in a small town in northwest France, uh, where he became a successful watchmaker. Zaley also came from a military family, and she also had hopes of entering the religious life. But her attempts, too, were unsuccessful, and instead she directed her energy and enthusiasm to becoming the most talented lace maker in the region. Louis and Zaley were, were married in July of 1858 at Zaley's parish of Notre Dame in France. Their wedding took place uh, at midnight on a weekday. And this for several reasons. Both of them were very humble people, and so they wanted a smaller and a more ordinary ceremony. But they also wanted to receive the Eucharist. And at that time, the Eucharistic fast was from midnight on. And so holding a midnight mass meant that they could receive the Eucharist without any delay. The Eucharist, as I mentioned, is sometimes called the sacrament of unity. And so what better way to begin their marriage than by being united in the Eucharist, by receiving the body and blood of Christ together. From the very start of their marriage, they loved each other deeply, and their marriage was successful because it was rooted in Christ. For almost a year, they lived their married life as brother and sister, but later were counseled by a priest to bring children into the world. So then they changed their prayer, and they prayed together that they might welcome many children into the world, including many sons who would become priests. And together they were blessed with nine children who were their pride and joy. However, four of the children, including their two sons, died in infancy. But even though these children passed away, they were still part of the family, as their parents kept their focus on the life of heaven. And that's why in some icons, the entire family is depicted together. Louis and Zeli, with the five grown children and four smaller ones. You parents who have lost children to tragedy have a kindred spirit with these great saints because they, along with your children, can become intercessors on your behalf. The five remaining daughters of the family all became religious sisters, four of whom joined the Carmelite convent in Lisieux. But more tragedy struck the family when Zaley succumbed to breast cancer at the young age of 45. There's a book entitled A Call to Deeper Love, A Call to Deeper Love, which chronicles over 200 letters from Louis and Zaley. Some of the letters are written to each other, but other letters are written to different members of the family and different friends. 
And these letters offer a unique insight into the ordinary details of their daily lives. In their correspondence, Louis and Zelie speak of such ordinary things as their concern for their children's welfare, business matters, their children's antics, or even normal parenting frustrations. But holiness took place within their home. Prayer as a family was the norm. They attended Mass together each Sunday, and even Sunday Vespers. In fact, one of St. Therese's fondest memories of her childhood was attending Sunday Vespers and Eucharistic Adoration with her family. Throughout their married lives, Louis and Zelie knew the joys and the sufferings of family life. Zelie wrote that although her, the death of her children caused her much pain and sorrow, she knew that they weren't gone forever because they would all be reunited in heaven. As St. Paul would say, this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And also St. Paul said that the sufferings of this present life are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us in eternity. So suffering certainly took its toll on this family, but we don't notice or, or recognize any bitterness in their attitude. So what enabled Louis and Zelie to lead such heroic lives of holiness and virtue amid such suffering and grief? It was their faith in God and their love of Jesus in the Eucharist. And what's more, they passed on these important traits to their children. Five daughters dedicated their lives to Christ in the convent. One daughter is a canonized saint already, while another's cause has been opened for sainthood. The faith and love of these parents fostered an environment which nurtured not only their daughter's vocations, but also their beginnings in holiness. Love requires union, and the greatest union of all is the union of God and the soul. And that's why marriage is so important in the eyes of the church. Christian marriage is an outward sign of God's love for us, of Christ's love for his church, neither of which can be broken. Now, to assist us in our understanding of marriage, let's consider the story of the wedding feast at Cana in John chapter 2. When we think of all the miracles that Jesus did, curing the blind man, curing the leper, raising the dead to life, his own resurrection, when we think of all the miracles that Jesus did, it might be puzzling to us to realize that he performed his first miracle in the context of a wedding feast and at his mother's request. But by doing so, he confirmed the goodness of marriage and made Christian marriage both a sign and a cause of his grace. Jesus elevated marriage between baptized persons to the dignity of a sacrament. And we know that a sacrament is an outward sign that's been instituted by Christ to give us grace. And grace is just another word for God's life. So the more grace that we receive, the more like God we become. There's so many things to consider in this story of the wedding feast at Cana, but I'll highlight just three. First, Mary is the one who initiates the request. Now, just as Eve fully cooperated in the downfall of the human race, so Mary, the new Eve, fully cooperates in human redemption by her yes and by her obedience and faith. A man and a woman, faithful to God's plan, brought about the redemption of the human race. And this same type of sacrificial fidelity and love is part of God's plan for marriage. 
Mary brought the needs of that unknown, unnamed couple to her son, and she does the same for us. So we need to cultivate a deep Marian devotion, especially during this beautiful month of May, which is dedicated to Our Lady. Secondly, Jesus protests that his hour has not yet come. And in St. John's Gospel, the word hour is really just a code word for the cross, because the hour of Jesus' suffering is really the hour of his triumph, of his glorification on the cross. But once he performed that first miracle, his disciples began to believe in him, and so he could no longer hide his power. This meant that his mission of his passion and death was on the immediate horizon. So Mary was really assenting to his death, his hour of glorification, even spurring him on to complete that task for which he came to earth, namely to suffer, to die, and to rise from the dead. Thirdly is Jesus' first miracle was to transform water into an abundance of wine. We're talking about 180 gallons of wine. At the Last Supper, the wine would be transformed into his blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant. And this covenantal aspect is at the very heart of marriage, wherein a man and a woman mutually give themselves to each other for the whole of their lives out of love for each other and out of reverence for Christ. Marriage is at the very heart of the scriptures, from the very first pages of Genesis to the very end of the book of Revelation. The Bible begins with the story of creation, when the man and the woman were created by God, equal and complementary. They were told to be fruitful and multiply and to care for all creation. And then as we continue through the Old Testament, we encounter those beautiful stories of the tender love of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. The books of Ruth and Tobit and the Song of Solomon also exemplify the ideal of sacrificial spousal love. When we turn to the New Testament, we find that the icon for marriage is Christ, Christ who loved his bride, the church, all the way till death. Christ's love is forever, it's faithful, and it's fruitful. And that's why every marriage on earth is meant to foster these goods of marriage, these three goods of permanence, fidelity, and children. Later, St. Paul wrote, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her. So marriage is really about sacrifice and holiness, helping each other get to heaven. And in the very last pages of the book of Revelation, heaven is likened to a marriage, the wedding feast of the Lamb, thus bringing to a happy and eternal conclusion the creation story of Genesis, where the man and the woman were created to help each other to carry out God's love and his commands. So really, every marriage on earth is meant to point forward to that definitive marriage in heaven, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the union of God and the soul, because in heaven, love and union will have no end. In Genesis chapter 2, by God's design, the woman came forth from the side of the man as he slept a deep sleep. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' hour of glorification on the cross, a soldier opened Christ's side with a lance, from which poured out blood and water. Blood and water. 
the church's sacramental life, the waters of baptism, and the blood, which is the Eucharist. And the church fathers see in this action the birth of the church, the woman, the bride of Christ, coming forth from the side of Christ, the man, as he slept the sleep of death. And those who receive these sacraments are drawn into the union of God with humanity, which is far greater and far more important than the union that Adam had with God in the beginning. Through our reception of the sacraments, we're not restored to an earthly paradise. We are given a throne in heaven. In an ancient homily on Holy Saturday, our Lord says to Adam, and by extension to each one of us, he says, the throne formed by cherubim awaits you. The bridal chamber is adorned. The banquet is ready. The eternal dwelling places are prepared. The treasure houses of all good things lie open. The kingdom of heaven has been prepared for you from all eternity. So Jesus is the one who has purchased heaven for us by his death. But when we receive the Eucharist, we become divinized, which is something that Adam and Eve, although they had union with God in the Garden of Eden, couldn't achieve that same type of union, that same divinization during their lives on earth. St. John Paul II often spoke about the spousal union and the gift of self that is required in marriage. But the first one to give himself entirely to his bride was Christ in the Eucharist and also on the cross. And what's the most powerful union that we experience on earth? Well, some might say spousal love. But that's just the love among two humans. A greater union is brought about by our union with God, with our Savior Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, which is a foretaste of eternal life. And right after we receive the Eucharist, we become a living tabernacle of the Most High God. And that's a closer friendship than any human friendship can bring about. So then when we go to Eucharistic adoration, spending time with the Lord truly present in the sacrament of the altar, we're spending time with a person who loves us more than anyone in the world. Some people don't know what to do in adoration, but we might think of spouses who've been married for a long time. Even though they might not say anything to each other with their words, their mere presence with each other is a gift, a gift of themselves. When we pray, when we converse with God, we allow him to woo us, to speak tenderly to our hearts. On many occasions in the Old Testament, the prophets use the analogy of marriage when speaking of God's covenant with his people. And it's the same with each one of us. That Jesus has entered into union with us through his blood, the blood of the Eucharist, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which every marriage covenant is meant to foreshadow. In marriage, the two really do become one. They become something new. And in the Eucharist, through the words of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, the bread and the wine also become something altogether new. Through transubstantiation, the bread and the wine truly become the body and the blood of Christ, the Son of God. And that's why after the consecration, we don't call it bread and wine. We call it what it is, the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. Or we might call it the sacred host and the precious blood. And the whole Jesus is contained really and substantially in the host and also in the precious blood. So someone who receives just the host or just the precious blood or both is receiving the whole Jesus. 
But our words matter. We know this from law and we know this from logic, that words are important. Words put us in touch with reality. So we need to train ourselves to speak reverently and correctly about the Eucharist. And because it is truly the body and blood of Jesus, God himself, we show great respect and reverence for the Eucharist, both internally and externally. Internally, we must be in the state of grace by having been to confession recently, and then by preparing our hearts for Mass. Externally, we should take part in the prayers of the Mass, to sing the hymns, to follow along with the structure of the Mass. External participation also includes the way that we dress. We would dress up. Again, logic tells us, and manners tell us, that we would dress up when we attend the dinner of an important person, maybe the bishop or a senator. It shows respect for the one who is hosting the dinner. But here, we come to God's house by his direct invitation. And that's why we want to give him our very best, both internally and externally. That's why we genuflect or we bow before entering our pew, why we try to keep our minds focused on the great miracle taking place before our very eyes. Just like we would bow in the presence of an earthly king, so we reverence the king of the universe in our midst. At the time of Holy Communion, the altar boy holds a patent, lest the sacred host should fall to the ground. When it comes time to receive Holy Communion, do we go up carelessly, shuffling along in the line in a mechanistic way? Or do we go up powerfully aware that we are about to receive the flesh of the Son of God? So here are a few practical reminders. You may receive Holy Communion on the tongue or in the hand. But in either case, some sign of reverence is always made prior to receiving, usually by means of a bow or a genuflection, while the person ahead of you is receiving Holy Communion. The priest or the minister will then say, the body of Christ, and the communicant will respond, amen, a word which means, I believe, or it is true, I do believe. If Holy Communion is received on the tongue, we simply put out our tongue, Then we step to the side, make the sign of the cross, and return to our pew. If communion is received on the hand, then the hands must first of all be clean. And we always use both hands. We always make a throne for the Lord, a worthy dwelling for our Lord truly present. But incidentally, if we're carrying a child or a handbag or something else, then communion should be received on the tongue. The dominant hand is always placed underneath as a sign of humility. So I'm right-handed. So I would place my right hand under my left and make a throne for the Lord. The host would then be placed in my left hand, and I would receive the host right away, make the sign of the cross, and then return to my pew. If you're left-handed, the order is simply reversed. But we never reach out and take the host from the priest, because we always receive the Eucharist. We always receive the sacraments. We never take them from God, but rather they're freely given, and so we only receive them. And then by the time we reach our pew, we have become a living tabernacle, And so it's good for us to spend time, in our own words, thanking God, spending this time in praise for God who has become flesh inside of us. The Eucharist must be the very center of marriage and family life. So in this fast-paced world of Northern Virginia in the 21st century, we need to fight for time to pray as a family, to pray the family rosary each day, to attend Mass as a family each Sunday, to put up pictures of Jesus and Mary and all the saints in our home, 
Ultimately, to see to it that our home is a place where God is loved and obeyed, first of all, by us. This means being faithful to our wedding vows, praying with our spouse each day, reading the scriptures together, pursuing holiness together. The Catholic Church calls the family the domestic church, the home church, which reminds us that holiness is meant to take place within the home. In fact, home is the place where faith and virtue are first taught, just like it was for St. Therese within her family. It also means barring all evil from entering our home, whether that be through another person, through video games or technology, or anything of the sort. We want our homes to be places where holiness happens. And in the end, the holy family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph can be our model for our families as well. Because by imitating their virtues, we can help our families, with the help of Christ, to become holy families. We know that Jesus was the very center of the Holy Family. So if we keep Jesus truly present in the Eucharist, at the heart of marriage, and at the heart of our family life, then we too will become saints for the kingdom of God.